Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and we are back for a famous, I'm saying it's famous, Q&A with Mike Isratel. And we touch on various things. One of those, and we got quite in depth about this, is kind of traveling, how to go about your training, nutrition. We've talked about Das Gym, our individual experiences there. That was a lot of fun. And then we touched on latent hypertrophy. Is it a thing? What's happening post-show? Why are people looking better? This is something we went in depth with. And of course, lots of other things too. It was a fantastic episode as always. And I know there's lots of questions I didn't get to. We'll definitely do another one of these in the near future to get to those. And as a reminder, if you are interested in gaining some muscle, losing some fat, taking the stage or doing a photo shoot, whatever it might be in regards to that, Remember, if you want help with that, we do offer online coaching, one-on-one coaching personalized to you at Revive Stronger. If you are interested in having a consultation with one of our team, one of our coaches, then please do check out. It will be linked in the description, all of our online coaching services, and we'd be happy to help you with that. But without further ado, let's get into the show. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Dr. Mike back on the show. I always say it, Mike, but it always feels like ages since we've last spoken, and I think actually this time, and I haven't checked, I normally check, it has been a while since we've spoken. I don't know if you feel that way, or you do so many podcasts that you're just like, (laughs) it just always the same. It does feel like a while. No, 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 it feels like a long time. I don't remember last time, I faintly remember last time we did it. Um, What impresses me, Steve, is the permanence of Steve Hall. You are as always Steve Hall. And there's never a time when you introduce yourself and you're like, I'm actually somebody else this time. Oh, I knew it. I knew there was too long of a time, but for the last one, Steve changed into a different person. <laughs> well, maybe if uh, me and Charlotte were to get married and I took her last name, that'd be the time where it's like, oh no, do I actually have to change? Like, what would I don't know. be your name? It's 2022. Uh, her last name is Can. So it would we would go Hall Can or Can Hall. I don't know. I'm not wow. picky. <laughs> Steve can. I like it. I there like can. A, it's much better than Hall. <laughs> there was a, a military expert uh, being interviewed. His name was Steve Hall. And I almost made a post. I was like, Steve, haha, what are you up to? And then I was like, this is bottom of the barrel, meaningless social media interaction. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to do it. But uh, yeah, you would be giving up name relation to that person. Yeah. Maybe there are Steve Cans out there that are just amazing <laughs> and give you better Google results or something. Yeah, true. I think when you search Steve Hall, it comes up with someone who was on X Factor. He's like an old guy and he went on X Factor and, I don't know, performed. And so yeah, he was quite funny. He did something. <laughs> he did something more impressive than me. So yeah, I, just, I just hope he didn't think he had big arms. Because oh, then yeah. he'd meet you and be like, uh-uh, no so mike has just come back from australia literally when did you land like yesterday like yesterday yes. like yesterday so i just uh want to tell everyone that that be very thankful i'm thankful that mike's here oh, and we're please. able to do this oh my god how was it's not uh, a problem at all it's my honor steve and no big deal you're out there for a couple of weeks right or is it just a I week? Was, yeah myself and crystal were out there for two weeks and we went to perth and did a seminar there um with Richard at Physique Code in Perth, and then we did the um, Ultimate Evidence-Based Conference uh, with the JPS crew, and then we also did a um, a couple of we did one big sit down with um, Eugene Teo, 
on his YouTube channel, and he's going to cut that video up into a few slices and put that out. That was a, a pretty good podcast, though Eugene says he's not doing a podcast, even though people have asked him to. He does have a technical setup for it. He's like, ah, I don't know. So we did, did just some sit-down videos, so I think that'll be some good conversation. Uh, I get a little wacky there with some analogies, and people always seem to like that. that. So be something to look out for. I think for sure. I, I, I know who Eugene is. I've seen him and his content out there, but I have never spent a huge amount of time kind of digging into it. So it's yeah. really cool to see you guys yeah. interacting. And I, I saw some of the stories that he was doing with you guys and you seem to get on really yes. well. So I'm excited yes. to see those chats and everything because I think you maybe had some, what I, I guess from the outside in, looked like some differences in opinion on yeah. mostly like performing exercises and things. So it's great when you can... Yeah kind of talk to people like that and see yeah so at. eugene's just like a really nice guy and he's super reasonable and super just chill and on my best days i'm some of those things and so uh you know because he was really cool it doesn't matter to me that we disagree about things we can always both give our opinion even talk about why we disagree maybe move the needle for each other maybe not and then just have people take it for what it is and make their own best decisions. I had an interesting question in our team full ROM Facebook forum where someone asked like, why do you and Menno and I think he listed a, a one other person disagree so much on the specifics. I know you guys all agree on the general calorie surplus, blah, 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 volume intensity, but on the specifics, you guys seem to be very worlds apart in many cases. Why is that? And I was basically like, it could be for many reasons some of which are mysterious reasons, uh, some of which we start with different assumptions going in. Our own personal experience is different. Our experience with clients could be different. The way we interpret literature could be different. Some of us could be factually just wrong and not know it yet. Some of us could be a little more right and not know it yet. And so at the end of the day, I think some people in their, uh, some part of their mind are looking for like some sort of battle royale where just one person's opinion remains or everyone changes their opinion to the consensus. But I think that that's that would be neat. But what's also good to continue to have multiple divergent opinions on the specifics, because it offers people who come into the industry and think deeply about subjects, a chance to be intellectually diverse in their own realm, and to come at perspectives and to learn more and to maybe even have a unique insight of their own. Like if, if you have to line up everyone and say, this is the official evidence-based inner circle position stand on everything, we could be wrong on a few of those things and people wouldn't even notice. But if Menno thinks one thing and Eric Trexler thinks another and they go at it, the sparks flying from that discussion are insane creative sparks and a chance for people to think critically and go, well, is Menno right? And then they have to think for themselves. And then some guy in North Dakota who listened to that seminar can propose a hypothesis that unifies all the data better than Menno and Eric Troxler could have. And then all of a sudden, we're all the better for it. So I'm not really into the idea that we need to reduce all differences of opinion down to zero. I think conversations that do that end up for the system, for our society as a thinking machine. Anytime we have divergent opinions and we talk about them and people talk about them, it does reduce the difference on average. I think more clarity is determined in most cases, especially when the opinions are in good faith. You know, bad faith opinions don't count. Wacky opinions don't count. I wouldn't say Eugene, in my estimate, has for sure any bad faith opinions. And definitely nothing I can see is totally wacky. Why would you ever think that? Like, you know, you're not going to see me collab with Joel Seedman and be like, yeah, he's got a lot of good stuff to say. Like, no, he doesn't. 
but uh, I'm sure he's plenty of good stuff to say, but also insanely stupid bad stuff to say. And, uh, you know, so within the people that I think are fairly reasonable and good faith, I think it's great collabs and no need to free me to get, to be honest, I don't know all of Eugene's specific opinions on various exercise things. And I don't care because he's a nice guy. And most of his shit is so science-based that all the differences because they're minor, eh, it doesn't really matter yeah. much. So. Yeah, I think that's, that's so well put. Um, and it's exactly how I feel about it. And in fact, it's, I think for a lot of the audience, that's what I think a large majority of them enjoy the differences because then it, it I don't know, because there is no just one perfect answer and it, it's nice. It yeah. makes you think about things, try yes. some stuff out. And then you do get conversations between kind of the, the, the leaders, the thought leaders in the industry, and it can further everyone's understanding of things. So I definitely appreciate the differences in opinion. And like you said, there's so many reasons why you could come to that point of, of different opinion. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. And then uh, the only other thing I wanted to ask you, Mike, is, well, not the only other thing, we have a bunch of Q&A, <laughs> but uh, one kind of off-topic thing. You've been to Das Gym, is that right? Yeah. Me, Mike, Chalice, our physio, Mike, who uh, you met at the seminar last year, oh. and also uh, Pascal went there like a couple of weekends ago. We had, did like three training days there. We just like oh, went my. in, went ham. So how did you like it? So I was there before COVID and I think they had a lot less equipment. But they oh, already really? had a crap because it was just a lot of gym space that was empty because it's so big. Um, I wouldn't even know what it would look like if you filled it up. Um, but they had so much great stuff. To me, the training setup and the equipment is great. But the cultural museum aspect of it is like not something you can really compare to anywhere else. Short of maybe Gold Gym where some of the photos on the wall are 60 years old or something. But man, Das Gym is like a real special place. It's, it is a mecca, not in the sense only that you have lots of great training equipment, because a lot of other gyms are called meccas for that reason. You're thinking maybe the true mecca for bodybuilding is Das Gym, because it is all the giant thing in, in honor of kind of the golden era and Arnold specifically. And I mean, gee whiz, Arnold kind of started modern bodybuilding in some sense, yeah. in some really big sense. I mean, if you think about where bodybuilding would be, Without Arnold, I just don't know how to answer that question. And Das Gym is the most honorable way to remember Arnold for everything amazing that he is. And that whole cultural experience by itself, and also because it's in Austria, it's like extra, extra special. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, in the UK, you can have an Arnold Memorial and be like, yeah, but Arnold was Austrian, right? So it, it's just wonderful. What, what did you think about it? Very similar thoughts. The equipment was great. Uh, I don't know if as like a, a pure gym to train at like each and every week, if I would choose that over say, um, what's it called? Dragon's Lair in Vegas. Uh, I loved training there. I thought that was yep. really nice. But as like a place to visit as like someone who loves bodybuilding, it was like, like you said, you go down a corridor, so many different corridors, so many different memorabilia of like all the old stuff to the kind of some of the newer stuff in the golden era rambo arnie like yes i think they had two terminators like two life-size arnie like statues statues yeah so it was an incredible experience i'm glad we went because for us it's super close like i can't believe it's actually taken us this long to kind of get there so yeah, yeah how cool. did you get there did you fly over to austria or yeah it's like a two-hour flight from uh, gatwick yeah it's not far at all super easy was, <laughs> it was like a, it was like a 200 flight or something like that uh, yeah, I can't even remember. So it yeah, kind of costs a lot. <laughs> I, I, I always like forget the, how close everything is in Europe to everything else in Europe. 
You're like, hey, let's just go to a completely different country. Like, yeah. oh, it's a $25 train ticket. You go on a train for 30 minutes. What? Oh, yeah, that's Luxembourg. There it is. It's because it, in the States, I mean, you've been to the States. You can you can go three days on a train and yeah. nothing changes, even scenery-wise. And you're like, oh, okay, guess I got to fly for $1,000 to get anywhere. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so glad you went, Steve. And, and yeah, also, cool. Austria is, uh, uh, is beautiful in, in yeah. any case. Yeah, we didn't. I wish we'd spent more time viewing the city and things, but it was more about kind of going and training and getting to the gym. That's what's yeah, important. Getting to the gym, uh, and actually, that leads me to another question, which hopefully is also interesting to listeners. You tr- travel a-, a fair bit, and you try training kind of various gyms. And I was reflecting upon like training out there, and I was like, despite the equipment probably objectively being better than what I have access to day to day at my gym, I had better yeah. sessions at my gym i imagine there's yeah. lots of factors included in that but do you experience the same when you're traveling even if the equipment's maybe better i mean the kind of sections you can get in your own gym are have these advantages that are insurmountable for travel it's a type of better there are different types of better sessions well the type of better you can have at your own gym almost no matter where you train is you know exactly what reps to hit and to be with what loads on what specific exact to the centimeter foot positions on your favorite machines. And the idea that you go in and you have exact progressions, exact known SFRs, exact techniques, the dependability of that, the reliability of that, the consistency of that, geez, that's impossible to beat. Um, that being said, Having a bunch of carbs, getting a big ass pump in a new gym with cool lighting and awesome machines to try. If you just do a bunch of Maya wraps or giant sets or drop sets, that's a special kind of training that maybe even for me takes me back to my roots when I was younger and didn't know how to structure my training well. So those kinds of workouts were the best because the comparison workout at home was another version of that workout, not anymore. Uh, specific or any more reliable but now that we've all settled into our sort of training through what we call modern periodization geez you know beating that consistency is really hard and that's why i think there's a big difference there where travel just isn't the same i will say if you are in special sports supplements sometimes you can have them where you go sometimes you can't training without some of them after training on them for so long just never the same thing and so there's other considerations for why, you know, you'll see bodybuilders. I used to see this and didn't understand it, but you'll see pro bodybuilders be like, you know, um, traveling a lot for guest appearances, time to shut it down and really focus on the off season here at home. And I was like, off season, you eat tons of tasty food on the road. You get amazing workouts on the road at new gyms all the time. As long as you get enough sleep, you should be good. It should be the time of your life. You should be gaining tons of of, of weight. And it's like, well, they can't do their insulin on the road. They can't travel with growth hormone because it goes bad if you mix it. And even if you don't, if you shake the powder enough in the luggage, it'll go bad. Legal issues. Um, you get different gear, different places. Some of the oils don't mix well. You get welts in your body. You get a fever. The whole thing is a giant cluster. But if you're at home on the grind, everything's consistent down to the gym and the supplements and everything. And then you're like, okay. This is the kind of training I'm talking about. So for me, there's that extra unfortunate side effect that degrades travel training a bit more. 
I think travel training is best done in context. Now, I will leave folks here with some actionable, I think, some to some extent, advice or wisdom. And, and here it is. If you go and travel and you are very interested in replicating as much consistency as possible from your home training to your travel training, you are setting yourself up for an, a, a really impossible task that is going to leave you disappointed. I'm going to make a really crazy analogy here, but work with me. It's like imagine if you're in a relationship in which you know uh, you uh, both partners agree, hey, let's go out uh, by ourselves separate times and go get laid with somebody else. It'll be fun. We'll be safe, and it'll just be this fun thing we just do. And unrelated, one person goes and gets there somewhere, another person goes and gets there. It's great. Can you imagine like showing up and setting up something through, let's say, a friend who you wanted to bang each other for a while, and you finally set it up, and you're like, hey, like this, my girlfriend says this is cool, and she's like, oh my god, thank god, this is gonna be so fun. And you go in and, and she's like, well, what kind of stuff do you like? We want to have one night. Let's make it right. And you basically like, be like, yeah, that's exactly what I do with my girlfriend. Uh, let's try that. Ha, ah, you guys have been together for months or years. No one's going to be able to do you like that. It's not, you know what I mean? Like this, you're setting an impossible standard. There's just the lack of intimacy alone is going to prevent you from doing that. So what you should you be doing is something different, something also fun, something organic in the moment that makes sense, but you can't have the goals for the same old, same old, because that's an impossible task. It's a great way to ruin a potentially fun experience. Just the same way in training, if that analogy didn't take us off in a, a tangent, I think, it, I think it works as an analogy. It's goofy. It's nothing I've ever done or almost certainly ever will. But you know, if you just think about it in your head, you're like, that yeah, would be an insane yeah. idea. Can you imagine like, well, the way my girlfriend does it, it's like, what are you talking about? What is crazy? Like, it, the same thing is just as crazy, except we don't think about it. It's like, I've seen people travel for gyms and be like, have you been using the Cybex leg press? Does this gym have a Cybex leg press? Be like, bro, I can spare you the expense. You sitting on the plane, rounding your back on that stupid aircraft chair for the you know the 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 way you sit in a plane. You having to get an Uber. You get in a hotel. You having to switch up your workout. You training at a different time of the day. Eating different things before. Do not go in there even if they have the same leg press to try to replicate a load and get the same PR. The boy did four plates per side and I got nine reps last time. I guess it's ten. There's so many different things. It's a fool's errand to try to replicate that workout at all. So what I say is go in there. Match RIRs at the very least. Like if it's a two RIR week, hit everything two RIR. Do some drop sets, do some my reps, try some new machines, have some fun. And as long as you stimulate that same muscle group in a relatively similar way and even a little harder, you're going to have an amazing stimulative session and you're going to have fun. It's the best possible combination of everything. Just so say, folks listening, when you're on the road traveling, do not try to replicate your workouts verbatim or even close. Use it as an opportunity to inject sensible, fun variation and go hard. Don't try to be like, oh, I'm going to replicate this as best as I can. The as best as I can is something you do for things like if you have a, a really productive office set up like you do there, Steve, and you love getting your work done in a very comfortable chair. If you're traveling for work, yeah, to some extent, you should try to replicate that as much as possible. Like I got my same mouse pad that I like, my laptop, my little carrying case. The closer I can get, the better because variation and doing work in a chair is like usually unproductive. But in the gym sense, it's super productive and super fun. And people who try to get that same workout going and like, oh, I wish they had the following. I wish they had an Atlanta's hack spot. Like, bro, stop saying that. There is no gym that, that you know, like I went to the Atlantis gym uh, to train recently and we got it on video in Canada. 
and I have a bunch of the same equipment. I could have made a program that was very similar to what I do at home. I didn't do that in the least. I tried other stuff because just with the travel alone, forget about me having the same kind of workout to begin with. Yeah, I think that's that's so well said. Uh, particularly, it brings me to the thought between myself, I, I coach Mike and Pascal. I don't coach Pascal, but we all had different splits and we just came together and we're like, right, we want to train together. We're not yes. going to all try and do our own splits here. Like, let's just do what seems reasonable, a push, a pull, a legs. Yes. And I, I did exactly what you said. I kind of went, I probably did a bit more, well, I did more sets than I normally do. I kind of yeah, roughly was aiming fine. for an RER. And then I was just like, let's just make sure I get a pump. So like use those kind of uh, proxies that you, we talk about in terms of the pump, the disruption, make sure I've had a good workout and come out of it the other side, like happy that, I, I, I'm like I don't need to just perfectly like you said if you try to perfectly replicate it back home it's just yeah. you're just going to stress out and it's not going to be what you wanted anyway yeah I got another couple of tips on that since I think this is a very legitimate like an informational thing definitely don't try to replicate the same stuff another thing is try to just get in one sometimes you can get a good setup and get two sessions a day with traveling but I would say to condense to one most often, just get to the gym once. It's Ubering back and forth, all those crazy stuff. It just might be a, a huge hassle. I would say try to condense smaller muscle groups in with larger ones. Like I've traveled with people before and myself been this person where if people are like, all right, what do you think? Let's cook up the back. I'm like, uh, actually, I have forearms and calves today. And in the PM, I have back. But shut up. What, what are you doing? You're going to come back again to hit back later. We're here for an hour and a half doing our own workouts, and you're going to do a 20 minute calf and form workout. What? Check your email for a, another hour at this gorgeous gym. We only have once in a lifetime. It's insane. It's an insane proposition. I know where people are coming from. They're coming from a dedicated, like, very industrious background of this is the plan, and I do the plan. But the thing is, once this is the plan and I do the plan becomes illogical and alternative uses of your time become more logical, you're not being committed. You're just being insane. You can stop doing that and start doing smart things right away. It's like, you know, if you're going to go shopping for milk, but then aliens started attacking, you don't just continue to drive to the store. You're like, well, I said I'd shop for milk and that's what I'm going to do. Like, what are you crazy? Don't do that. You know, it's, it's a bad idea. Um, or maybe a more a more less real, slightly more realistic analogy is like if people knock on your door and they have a ten million dollar check from the lottery, you're like, hey guys, I'm on a Zoom call with my boss. Can you come back and what? <laughs> no, no, no. Like there's there's a time to switch it up. And the other thing I would recommend is this: um, if you can, to the extent that you're able, I would say maintenance or a slight surplus is the number one way to tra travel. Traveling extensively, even if it's going to other gyms, while on a deficit, is a compounding situation of fatigue and difficulty and nuisance. And what it is that you think you're getting out of five more days of a deficit is crazy. And if you say, oh, hold on, Mike, but you didn't think of this, I have a show coming up in three or four weeks. I have to be on track. Why are you traveling? So if you're real serious and you have a proximate goal, stop fucking traveling and then diet at home. If you are in a situation where you are having some travel, take some maintenance or surplus, couple of days, couple of weeks. You're going to have a great time eating tasty food from a different part of the world, different part of the country, training at gyms, getting a big pump, relaxing on fun with your friends. It's going to make it an amazing trip. 
What you don't want is to make an otherwise amazing trip miserable by eating low carb or some crazy stuff. Like I've done those trips before. I've traveled a lot in the past several years. I've done both ways. And what I tend to think is 10% of the time, those kinds of trips are a good idea where like, yes, indeed, you do have to do the thing. You do have to diet through travel. I went to Hawaii once for 10 days, did a gnarly deficit. Turned out it was fine. I, I was really like grooving with it. But like if you 90% of the time, maintenance or, or, or surplus. And the thing is like if you have like a 13-week diet just to get lean and five days of that for one trip is at maintenance or even a slight surplus, based on the recent literature for diet breaks and refeeds, the worst case is you get the same results as if you dieted continuously. The best case is you get even better results from that little diet break. So that whole idea of like, I'm just going to diet through all my travel and all this other crazy stuff, I think is a level of dedication that is too high for the situation at hand. Like if, if you really are as dedicated as you say, don't plan travel when you're in a hardcore mode. But if you do have travel and you have some ability to do it, go to maintenance, go to a slight surplus. You'll have a great time. Because remember, most travel, you don't see, did you need to go to DOS gym? Of course not, right? That would an insane idea. You're there for fun anyway, literally. Maximize the fun. Uh, you know, again, to why not bring this back to a sexual analogy if I'm on that streak? It's like you have the hookup of your life, but you're in some kind of diet mode. You got your watch on, and halfway through, you're like, hey, like, I'm burning too many calories. I, I, need, I need to back off here. This is going to be way too much. Of a what are you talking about? Are you crazy? That some people train their travel. And it's so easy to get into that mindset if no one corrects you. Uh, because it's so easy to be like, I'm a bodybuilder. I committed myself to a fat loss plan. I did have some travel planned. I'm going to diet through that shit. Low respect. And you're doing, for, as a notion is concerned, you're on the right track. But in the real world, be kind of easy to take maintenance phases and slight surplus and how it doesn't radically slab fat onto your body or whatever people think is going to happen. Like, Steve, I'm sure you've talked to people before, clients of yours, that they're going to have a four-day trip and it's in my cut phase, and I'm really stressing out about it. And I'm sure you've been like, yeah, just go to maintenance. And they're like, but won't that, but won't that what? Literally maintain the same results you had. So it's like hitting a pause button, and then you lose nothing, and you come back next Monday and grind. They're like, well, yeah. It's like, what is your plan to eat like Tim Tams until you're blue in the face and gain three kilos of, of fat mass? Unless it's that, you don't have to worry about it. You know what I mean? Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. 
and I think it because I, I know the mindset that you're talking about too because I think a lot of successful bodybuilders have it and it's about controlling it and easing it I do that with a lot of my clients myself as well I think I'm almost too far that way sometimes so I'm slowly learning to get better at that I've certainly actually digesting your content has helped with that and I'm sure for a lot of listeners it's helped too so I, I think a lot of the time though as well in these situations this sort of person knows in advance when this holiday is coming so they can almost plan like now they can plan that to be a maintenance and so to be on track so they can worry like if they can plan it into things i can see why they'd stress out if it's just like oh randomly it's coming next week and i had no idea but this sort of person generally <laughs> travel is planned in advance yes. too so, so like you said don't you plan, can, you can plan for maintenance. yes yeah. exactly exactly for sure Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad that was a productive discussion because I think there's a lot of people who like travel to gyms and they're not sure how to kind of go about it, especially because people who listen yeah. to you, Mike, they're, they're wanting to follow a program because they know how sure. important that can be. Sure. Even even let's say, let's say, uh, to use a UK example, you live in the, somewhere in London or the suburbs and your grandparents live in the country somewhere and your parents say, look, you know, for Easter or whatever, we're going to go spend two, two days with grandma and and you're going to like, oh, there's no gyms up there. Oh, my God. And I don't want to have to diet through grandma's house. Bro, two days of eating grandma's tasty food with some protein shakes thrown in and taking two days off of the gym completely is going to reinvigorate you like crazy, drop fatigue like wild, heal you up, probably grow some muscle too. Then you come back into the gym and thread things in, it's going to be a net positive. So this whole idea of like, oh, I'm never going up to the country to see grandma Middle, mid, mid, you know, Midlands don't exist as far as I'm concerned until I'm done with bodybuilding. Like that's nuts. And it, it, it's nuts, not in the sense of like, you know, some people are like, you should have a balance and bodybuilding's too extreme. No, 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 no. The extreme as it gets in the context of reaching extreme physique goals, optimally, a few days of no training and lots of great food is a net positive in most cases for that hardcore bodybuilding goal. I don't mean for life in general. Fuck that shit. You know what I mean? That people are like, well, you take yourself too seriously. You should ease up. Get out of my face. You know, but like for the purposes of being an elite physique athlete, this couple of days off and just eating some bullshit is good for you. In the literal sense, it drops fatigue, it heals up injuries, it heals up mental state, it gives you more power to go later. That's real stuff. So just remember that and don't let no, sort of neuroticism get in the way of you having two things, a good time and also an effective time to make yourself better at body. Yeah, yeah I think it's uh, it's kind of known the best athletes are those who can turn it on when they need to and like switch it off when they don't need to and so to myself included i'm almost too much often on and i find it hard to switch yeah. off but like kind yeah. of finding that off button is so helpful yeah michael jordan you know between games and championships would smoke cigars and play golf and would eat ridiculous food and drink champagne and you would think like well he's an elite athlete why is he doing that because on the net balance that stuff is so fatigue reducing for him that it makes him a better athlete think about that so if you're like after a bodybuilding show you're like back to clean eating no breaks here like, dude shut up you're just excusing your neuroses to pretend to be hardcore if you're really as hardcore as you say think it through understand fatigue management and understand that probably eating some fun food and taking a couple days off is even better for you at the end of the day if you want to be a machine machines need breaks they need re-oiling they need components replaced it's not people say like oh, I'm a machine. I just keep going. Name a machine you know that just keeps going. My laptop takes breaks to reset itself. 
at the very least, you could do that. You're not that big of a machine. You know what I mean? And people say, I'm a machine. And the analogy is like, I don't think you've ever seen a machine operate. They, they don't operate all the time. There's not like some factory where the CNC machine just goes 24-7 until it drops and then they replace it, put another machine in. And that die, like even machines need breaks. That's the huge thing. Yeah, I think it's uh, people need to, I hate, I guess I don't hate the word, but this kind of balance where it's like, you have those individuals who will almost find every excuse to sandbag a workout. Oh, I didn't sleep too well last night. And yes. so they just skip their session because they're like, oh, it won't be the best it could possibly be. And I think right. that sort of situation is quite often, you just kind of push through it and you'll make up the sleep kind of the next day, what have you, yeah. and like so on and so forth. So it's only in, like, I think that person who is in this mindset of like almost neuroses of doing things, they push despite whatever's going on with life, which I think is why it can get them a long way. But it's like you're describing yeah. in these scenarios, like that is actually net negative. You kind of have to weigh that up and rationalize it. 100%. Be logical at the end of the day. Yeah. So to the Q&A, uh, there was a question asked, and I think, I, I imagine you may have already been asked this question, but I haven't seen you discuss it uh, at full length. Uh, probably apart true from... for most questions at this point. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you've probably been asked everything by now, uh, which is why I'm kind of picky about my questions, but I used to be one of the only people that asked you questions uh, on like yes. a podcast, whereas now there's a yes. heck of a lot of people doing it, so I can't keep yes. up with all of it. I yeah. try my best. Uh, oh, but no you were recently on Mike Matthews' podcast, or at least it was recently released. I don't know when mm -hmm. you were on there. And yeah, neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> you asked about um, kind of range of motion and partial kind of range of motion came in. And obviously, you know Milo Wolf. His kind of research has just come out recently regarding kind of full range of motion. And I mean, in the long run, that seemed to also confirm that that was the way to go. But there seemed yeah. to be some kind of research looking into partial length ranges of motion in the lengthened position for muscle yes. groups yeah. and to be particularly kind of favorable for muscle growth. So I don't know if the question is essentially, has your mind changed at all on uh, seeing any of this? Where is your kind of, yeah. Has your mind changed regarding range of motion and hypertrophy? Yes. So the amount of data we have on full range of motion being superior to partial, uh, at least some, some kinds of partial, is way more than the amount of data we have that says partial in the bottom end stretch range is better. Now, we do have lots of other theoretical data that say uh, stretch under load is really, really good for hypertrophy. So uh, combining those two, what I want to do is establish the default weight of thinking is full. Full range of motion is the default way I do everything. And if there's a very compelling reason and or if I want to try something that makes sense, at least somewhat from the literature, I can. And one of those things to try is bottom end range of motion work. And I'd say in addition to that is try to make uh, one big thing happen for sure and one smaller thing happen on top of that. The smaller thing is try to get some way to standardize the technique because if you say do bench press for the bottom half, how do you know it's the bottom half or bottom 60% or bottom 40%? It's hard week to week to track strength and thus hard week to week to even track something like MRV. I mean, like, how do you know if you're not just getting weaker and you've been cutting the ROM more and more? You know, it's a, it's a problem. With full range of motion, you know exactly when you hit the top of the bench, you know exactly when you hit the bottom. But there are ways in some exercises to track that and at least do a decent job. And, and uh, so, for example, instead of doing a super ROM lateral with a cable, and taking it all the way over and all the way up, you can just take it to where your arm is at a 90 degree angle or, or parallel to the ground and then all the way back over for the stretch. It's the bottom half, but it's a very distinct stopping point. So there's ways to solve that problem. And it's not a big problem. The biggest problem is SFR. 
make sure that as you're doing this bottom end shit, that your SFR is at least as good as it is for the full ROM. And if it's better, hey, you're really winning. But if it's not better and if it's worse, then like maybe though, I mean, stimulus to fatigue ratio is such a core concept, such a core target in training. That if you're like, yeah, this bottom end stuff, the SFR is actually not as good, but I heard there's papers about it. Come on, that's not wise. So if the SFR is great and you can find a way to standardize the movement to some extent, I think exploring in your training bottom end stuff is definitely justified by the literature. And I would say my last thing is there are ways to do lifts that uh, take into account this research already. And these ways now used to seem like a way to do them that maybe had some downsides. And now these ways seem like maybe not the way, but definitely makes a lot of sense. For example, when some guys squat, they'll stop the squat at about three quarters of the way up and just go down again. And they used to say, because I don't have tension in the quads at the top. And guys would say, well, why don't you put bands on the shit? Then you'll have tension through the whole ROM. We know that now is not a good idea because we don't need that tension at the top. And then stopping three quarters of the way up every rep is a good idea. They kind of look like pulse reps. You've seen people squat like that, yeah, or leg press where they don't quite lock out. Yeah. And I think that used to be like you could do the pedantic incel thing where you're like, oh, technically that's not full range of motion and you're egotistically cutting, which is a fine critique back then. But now it's like, hmm. If the SFR is high on this and we have literature to say stretch under load is superior even to full ROM in some instances, gee, like really is difficult to argue against that. So um, another one is like, should you be trying to touch your butt with your heels every time on the leg curl? Maybe as long as you pass parallel or surpass 45 degrees and then go back down, it's totally fine. Again, there's a standardization question there, but you could probably solve that problem. Um, and then, you know, locking out benches, like if you do barbell bench or dumbbell bench, you could do a soft lock and back, or you could do a hard lock and weight. Now, both of those have different elements to them. I think the hard lock is more for standardization. Another thing is, especially if it's barbell, if you hard lock something and take a second and go back down, you maybe just bought yourself another half a repetition in the later in that set that gets you closer to failure and lets you flirt with failure. So one of the reasons we, I lock out on the leg press is I can do more reps like that because each lockout offers a little bit of rest. And that means I not only do more reps in the set, which you could just get with more sets anyway, it's that I'm able to stay close to failure for longer. So it is more hypertrophic. But if I wanted to get real short of lockout and then come back down, I think because stretch under load is such a big deal that, yeah, those are totally fine strategies. So if I see a bodybuilder at the gym not locking out various presses, leg press, chest press, et cetera, uh, even skull crushers, but making sure to get a real deep stretch. I ain't got nothing but love for that nowadays. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's actually a good idea. But if partial range of motion means missing the stretch, well, then really that's not the thing. And this is one of those times where my nerd, my nerd natty, uh, not impressively muscular, not IFBB pro heart really gets to sing because a lot of the whole IFBB, not the pros themselves, but nut huggers, anytime you have some research say something, they're like, the pros have been doing this for years already. We know they have not been doing this for years. When pros do partial range of motion, it's usually for ego reasons. I've described this very well on YouTube and like a five-part video of like, this is why they actually do this. 
because they're adult men and lots of testosterone. Their egos tell them they need to lift heavy weights. No, I've seen almost no bodybuilders really milk the stretch on something and then not get the contraction at the top. Usually it's the mid-range of the motion they do, which is simultaneously the easiest and also lets them use the most weight. So no, they have not been doing this. So yes, you can do this, but I wouldn't look to how most pros do partials because they do them wrong. Just just one thing to remember, it'll be a partial like John Meadows used to advocate for. You do a, a hack squat, you come halfway up on the next rep and then down and then all the way. It would look like that. No, nobody got time for that shit. You know how much that hurts? You, you'll you be like, oh, I, no shit, the SFR is higher on this. This is so hard and I'm so not able to use a lot of weight. That's what it would look like. It Bottom end ROM is even more painful and more insulting than getting a full range of motion. So just get ready to not be like, oh, this is going to be so great. And oh, wait, this is way harder than regular training. That's the advantage. I think that uh, explains it really nicely, to be honest. And I was interested to know if kind of how you felt about, again, the SFR proxies that we use and whether or not that could help guide decisions. I did ask Milo about it. He, there's an episode coming out with Milo. I can't remember what he said because obviously he's very uh, fundamentally aware of them. I can't actually remember if he conf- – I think he did confirm that some of the partial ranges of motion in the lengthened range he was using did improve his SFR. It's something I'm kind of implementing with some clients, mostly on like uh, pulling movements because that's often where kind of that yeah. short range – a short range is yeah. often the hardest too, so it, yeah. it seems a little bit more applicable to that. The standardization thing and the – kind of you're so used to doing a full rom that it's hard to change that almost like i find myself on cable rows and on pull downs i'm like man i'm so used to like wanting to touch her and it feels so right yes like i was so it's hard to kind of remove yourself from that and try even try experimenting with these things yes uh there are a couple of good ways to do it what a good way is is do a few sets with full rom and then do a couple few uh, a couple other sets with the same load but let's say pull downs, you only pull to your chin or only to your nose. And that's standardized completely, but it's not all the way down. It lets you accentuate that stretch a bit more. I think that's a really intelligent way to do it. Like if I see someone doing a pull up and they only pull up to their eye level and then back down, I'm not mad at that. But if they don't get a full stretch, I am mad at that because it's joking about it all and, and, and no one's having any fun. So you know, especially for pulling movements, the bad news is – you know, that feels weird, which is only our problem. It's not a problem in muscle physiology. The good news is that in pulling movements, especially, there are ways to standardize that, that uh, make it so that while it might feel weird because it's pretty easy to pull to a certain location, you can actually do it. And we all do it in pull-ups anyway. Very few people pull up until they touch their chest to the bar. I think that's cool. It demonstrates that you're really strong. But if you just pull up to eye level or nose or chin i think that's totally fine and because it hits that length and position really well it may even be superior to a full range of motion and that's just what it is yeah that's that's what i've slowly just been using it within some of my like pull downs i would say it was kind of technical failure when i didn't touch whereas now i'm like oh I'll keep going until basically like you said like i can't get it below my chin yep. something just it still uh, feels wrong uh doing it um, yes. but the same with and then something i've also been doing is cause some people would with pulling movements as well they pause in that kind of shortened position which i've never particularly felt sfr wise no, felt right. I hate it. yeah so i now on like pull-ups i'll come all the way like jared does like coming all the way let it fully stretch and like yes. almost pause there for a moment before yes. coming back up that's a great point steve 
I know a lot of people pause for good reasons. And some people pause for, again, it's a similar reason of doing your fat loss diet through a trip. Like this is what we do. We pause because we're extra, extra nitpicky. Okay. But is there a good reason? A lot of times when I coach people in person, they'll pause their bent over rows and look at me. And I'm like, don't, don't, don't pause that. Pausing bent rows is something you can do for variation, but often it's the chest uh, supported ones you want to pause. And often it's the, the rows to chest instead of to tummy you want to pause because they offer that pause offers you an ability to really hyper contract your scapular retractors and rhomboids and stuff to get the full pulling power and great overall back hypertrophy. A gentle touch to the tummy briefly is as much as you want to do and potentially not even that as long as you can standardize it somehow. So a lot of times people will pause in absolutely the wrong place. I remember I got shit for not pausing at the bottom of my cable tricep pushdowns. They're like, why don't you That's pause a horrendous pose. <laughs> And I'm just like, I don't know. So first of all, there's not even any load that your arms, your bones take the load anyway. And second of all, like, it's not a way for me to rest and get more reps. So that's out. So like a very low SFR fatigue drag on my set for no reason. And this is an excusable thing because for years, people have been told and believed that they peak contraction is a very important thing. And I think it might grow with some muscle fibers that full stretch doesn't but less of them on average. So it's less on average a good idea, which may mean it's still a great idea and training as a variation every now and again. But if you come at with this religious thing of like, well, those are shit pushdowns because you didn't pause and squeeze at the at the elbow every time and squeeze the tricep at the bottom, like, man, that's not what they're for. And, and to make a, a small point of it, and I don't really mean this, this is just me being an asshole, but I've always hated rope pushdowns with passion because for me, the SFR was always total shit. Uh, not because the fatigue was high, but because the stimulus is for me practically undetectable. And people are like, but don't you like the rope for like that real squeeze? And I'm like, I don't know what do you think you're getting out of that squeeze. I don't even mean that as a scientist, just as a bro. It didn't feel sh did shit for me. It didn't give me a great pump. It just felt like I was like, okay, I'm training my elbows at this point. I don't even know what's going on. And then if you just do skull crushers and get a super nasty stretch at the bottom and barely even lock out for, for a split second, biggest tricep pump of the planet and all of a sudden it's like well now rope pushdowns the ones that you know almost everyone who does rope pushdowns do, does them for that accentuated contraction now that looks like it's got its back to the wall as far as literature is concerned and i'm like a part of me is secretly not <laughs> secretly anymore happy about that but you know what do i know it's uh that makes me think of leg extensions i was always liking to pause those at the top because I was like oh, I can train the quad in a shortened range this is cool I can't normally do that and it always I, I always felt off and I almost always ended up skipping it anyway I was like it just feels better when I don't do it so this yes supported my bias and now you kind of know why right yeah <laughs> yeah the only other thought I have is does it change your application of kind of lateral raises at all in that with dumbbells obviously there's not a huge amount of tension in that starting rom versus using like a cable where you can kind of kick off tension immediately. Has it changed maybe your thinking around programming for like the side delts? So I think the side delts, you should program exercises that have the best stimulus to fatigue ratio. And if those happen to be cables because you're able to get an accentuated stretch, I think that's great. And you could do mostly cables and never do dumbbells or barbells at all and get a ton out of it. 
for me, especially super ROM laterals, give me such a great SFR for my delts. And anyone who's ever tried them usually agrees that I agree. Remember that the stretch under load isn't a dogmatic thing. You still get really great hypertrophy training in a bunch of different uh, accentuated positions. So if you never ever do any kind of cable work and you've never experienced relative stretch under load for side delts, you should try it because you might love it. The SFR would be great. Right now, actually, today I just did uh, some training and I did delts and I did cross body, one arm, lateral cable things, and they were, were great. Um, so, but if it's also effective as a variation for you to do side delts with dumbbells and do super ROM or regular ROM, I'm not going to fuck with your SFR. Like, if you get a, un, you know, you've done high rep laterals before, the burn in the shoulders doesn't go away for, for minutes and then you have to sit in weird positions for the lactic acid to leave that is hypertrophic nobody's debating that and if it's another effective variation for you to do that do it but if you're never tried some cable work to get the length and range hit you should definitely try it so i, I uh you know it's like uh if, if leg extensions may not be an ideal exercise from quad hypertrophy but like james hoffman he gets unreal crazy pumps and psycho doms from just a few sets of leg extensions what am i going to do tell them not to do them because biomechanics or something that's a ridiculous idea we're all built differently so many so much human variation and just exercise variation in general i have uh, more than a few videos coming out on this topic i feel like i'm going to make a video a year on this for forever the search for the optimal exercise is a fool's errand it is an impossibility it is as stupid as searching for the ultimate weapon in the military context. Are we talking land weapons? Are we talking offensive? Are we talking defensive? There's not even a category for optimal exercise, certainly not one even per muscle group, because of staleness. Whatever was optimal is no longer optimal. And so you have to have a candidacy group of five to 10, hopefully, at least two to five exercises that are the highest SFR exercises you have, and you cycle through them. And yes, yeah, some of those exercises will inevitably be the biomechanical ones that you would predict would be the best, but not all of them. And sometimes you need to take a break from the best to handle the other stuff. You know, it's like if you, even if you found, let's say you got, win the lottery, and you have billions of dollars, would you eat your favorite food for every meal? That's ridiculous. You would get sick of it after four meals and then you would have to eat something else. And somebody would watch you eat that favorite meal, the meal number five, and it's not your favorite food. And someone's like, wow, really? I didn't take you for a Snickers guy. I thought you said your favorite candy was XYZ. And you'd be like, well, it was last meal, motherfucker, but I got tired of the shit. So when I go and put my training videos on Instagram, uh, people are like, thoughts about pull downs versus pull ups. And I'm like, God damn it, Aaron, what are you fucking crazy? I don't have any thoughts like that. And you shouldn't either. It's like both are fine movements. And you should have an understanding of when one becomes stale, then you start using the other. Like that's the last, that's the end of the line on that whole logic train. And of course, it's nice for us to say that on here. The reality is that it's clickbaity to put up optimal exercise YouTube thumbnails, 10 exercises you're not doing, the one exercise everyone should do for big legs, which I have a special place in my heart, hatred wise, uh, for people that make thumbnails like that. And, you know, because it's a factually wrong statement as a thumbnail and, I don't have any love for people who learn from thumbnails, <laughs> uh, but at the end of the day, it's like, let's just not perpetuate falsehoods. 
Uh, and some of those people really do believe that. And they think, yes, you have to squat for big legs. I used to think that. Turns out I was wrong. And uh, I think it's it's high time that people say, well, you know, being the stretch under load is this thing. Should we really do any dumbbell or barbell work for shoulders? The answer always goes back to SFR. If you can get amazing SFR out of upright rows, I'm not coming to your job kicking dicks out of your mouth. But if you don't get a great SFR and the amazing one on cables, which give you the stretch, well, then just use whatever you can to get the best SFR until it's stale. The SFR will fall, and then you might have to go to barbells for a mesocycle or two just to refresh your ability to use cables again. How's that for a rant, Steve? I no, I'm I'm here for it. I've got a lot of time for that rant because <laughs> yeah. I get wound up the the same way by these uh, kind of clickbaity titles and things. And I, sometimes they're clickbait, and sometimes I think that person legitimately thinks there is this like ten exercises yes. that you must do, and yes, people say it's wrong either way. <laughs> yeah. They search for the perfect split and then they're just going to run this perfect split and these exercises forever. And it's like, oh, it's just, you know, it's not going to happen. You, you yeah. program for people in real life because this isn't going to happen. Same with rep ranges. Like, I don't know, eight to 12 is th- like we've gone back in time. We used to say it to 12. Is it, to me, the big question is this. Is there any part of life or consumer interaction in which that is true for anything? I mean, imagine someone says the perfect sex position. What? Until that gets boring, and then it's not the perfect one. The perfect food? No. The perfect car? No. Because cars are different. Sometimes you need a minivan. Sometimes you need a sports car. There, Steve, where is this the perfect one thing? It's, it's a myth in every respect. There's not even who's the best basketball player of all time. Even that's hard to answer. If we're talking about a team player, a leader, maybe that's Jordan. Maybe that's Larry Bird. If we're talking about physical one-man athlete, that's LeBron James. But maybe it's Kobe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that whole like the search for the search for the best group is intellectually very valid. There are definitely better and worse things but better and worse groups, almost never better and worse single entities that continue to be better and worse for, for, and it's like, if I sat next to someone in new military things, or, or I was sitting, let's say I'm in an airplane, I get a guy who's the four-star general guy next to him and then me, and the guy next to him just talks to him randomly and I haven't said anything. And he's like, so what's the best airplane? I would just start pulling my hair out and the general would look at me and be like, <laughs> there we go. Do you want to explain this instead of me? And it's like, there's no answer to that. There's different kinds of planes. And at the end of the day, none of them work if you don't have aerial refueling. So a boring, boring aerial refueling tanker may be the best plane in the military. It's it's a crazy idea. And we have to rein that in to some extent and say, look, there are better ideas and worse ideas. But you take your better ideas and you use them with interchangeability, with variation, searching for the best exercise. Is it leg press versus squat? Those are non-starters and, and they need to be, for smart people willing to learn, they need to learn that early, that that's not a thing. Yeah. And if, when people come on into YouTube and Instagram and ask, hey, they just don't know any better. They're just regular folks. Imagine if you ask someone on a computer forum, like, hey, what's the best processor I can get? They'd be like, what, for, for what outcome? What are you, crazy? And you'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. I just want good advice on what to buy. So we don't need to jump down their throats. But at the end of the day, it could be like, well, look, you know, here's some really good. AMD is a great processor. Intel is a great one. And you know this other company is a great one. And you can't go wrong with either of the three. One of them is more expensive, but you got to do some gaming to justify it. One of them is real cheap. It won't work for as long. But if you have a laptop you want to carry around for two years, it's a great choice. 
that's all you have to say. It's, it's as complicated as it gets as that, but it has to get more complicated than just go buy this one processor. It's the answer to all of your needs. It's the best in the world because almost certainly that's never going to happen. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together. I think that's very, very well explained. Uh, it brings me back to, like you said, at the, like everyone's an individual, everyone's going to feel things slightly differently and you're also going to feel that differently over time, which is why I personally have found so much value in that stimulus to fatigue ratio using it practically and with clients and getting them to learn it for themselves in terms of what they're feeling because and i've i almost feel bad saying this phrase but i kind of have coined the phrase and i've said it a few times in terms of like sfr can be your guiding star it's too so it's totally great. cringy it's totally cringy but i often that's kind of my philosophy for training is kind of sfr can guide many of my decisions in terms of adjusting volumes in terms of exercise selection in terms of kind of changing rep ranges like sfr guides many of those decisions that i make there so it, it's been such a yeah such a valuable tool to me as a, a trainee and a practitioner i don't know if we got time for one more question mike we got time for one and even two steve we've rambled okay. enough but i think i think we can <laughs> do some more questions let's hit it so there is one from lucy and she has asked about latent hypertrophy she said some people tout that the best gains they get are after a competition prep are they just gaining back mus lost muscle or is there something else going on there? Right. Very good question. And I would say this question is on the borderlands of what, certainly what I know. Um, and I would say the industry is using the term we is certainly in the borderlands of what we know. So I just have some food for thought. There is no distinct answer to this question. It's going to be like, this is what happens. I, I wish I knew, but we don't yet. Uh, is some is there a phenomenon by which after a competition a few weeks later you're much bigger than ever? Yes. What are the things that go into that? One is a uh, small one is regaining lost muscle. And to be completely honest, if you look at even the data on DEXAs, even in natural bodybuilders, you don't lose a lot of muscle, even on a contest prep. So. I know it's a huge fear, but if you don't screw up a lot or just over diet yourself straight to hell, um, it's not a big component. So we can say, okay, definitely some of that is regained muscle, but it's small. Another thing we know is muscle regain is super easy. So we're guaranteed that muscle back one way or another. Another one is sensitivity to glu glucose, insulin, and being able to store more glycogen so your muscles look bigger than ever. That's definitely a thing that happens after dieting. It accounts for a lot of that. So like you're like, dude, my pecs have never been this big. Like, yeah, but the last time you were on a mass phase, you were you know, less insulin sensitive when your muscles were this size. Now you're more, so they look 10% bigger, so that explains that. Another one is 
the last time you were this muscular, you were at the peak of a mass phase and you had some fat covering your muscle. Now you're exactly as muscular as you were in a massing phase, possibly visually a little bit more because you're storing even more glycogen than you could at the end of a massing phase. But you have so little fat covering the tissue that you look just way fucking bigger. Because look, let's be honest, when you're leaner, you look way bigger. People usually say, yeah, I don't look way bigger though, because when I'm leaner, I'm also carb depleted. Aha, but after a show, you get a combination of exactly as lean or 1% off of where you were at the show, but completely loaded to the gills with glycogen. But that is a special look. That's as big of muscles as you've ever had, plus some on a massing phase with none of the body fat of a massing phase. That's not a look you've ever seen. So even though you have the underlying anatomical reality to make that look, that's the look that you made. It's kind of like, jeez, uh, I'm on a hole. What the hell's wrong with my brain? I'll just continue on the relationship, <laughs> sexual stuff. <laughs> so here we go. Um, it's almost like, uh, you know, like the quote unquote ugly girl in those teen movies puts on some makeup and takes off her stupid glasses and brushes her hair. And it's like, how is she that hot? Like, no, well, she always was. They're like, bullshit. I've seen her every day of my life. Like, I know, I know. But the anatomy was there. She didn't get cheekbone surgery. She didn't get filler in the lips. It's the same body, just accentuated. And I think we lose track sometimes of how much accentuation potential we really have. Like, it's a lot. Like, yes, having almost none of the body fat you had in a massing phase and 10% bigger muscles from glycogen loading because you're more sensitive to, to insulin and carbs. That really does produce a nonsense look that could lead you to to conclude, yeah, I definitely seem to have put on muscle. Any of the reality could be that you didn't. But so those are the things, at least most of the things I can think off the top of my head that account for a large fraction of that variance. It may not be all of it. Latent or preparatory hypertrophy may very well be a thing. Now, there are ways in which we can hypothesize it's a thing. For example, you can build muscle, but because you are progressively reducing glycogen stores on average over the course of a fat loss phase, you could see none of that muscle growth visually because it's more and more contractile tissue, less and less glycogen. The muscle looks the same size. When you refill it with carbs, that new contractile tissue makes room for way more glycogen and you actually are the biggest you've ever been. It just hasn't happened yet. It's sort of like um, if you start a construction site to build a, a second skyscraper next to the first one and it's going to make like a five-story super shopping mall building but you cover it with tarp before you start constructing because you want a big reveal people look at it and they go okay a skyscraper with some tarp next to it about the same size same building and because you can't see in the tarp for a few years while they're building it you say it's the same size as always you pull the tarp off you let people go into the mall and like holy shit this is a huge five-story building it's a, thousands of square meters in here i had no idea that this is possible like well, it was always there. It was just kind of covered up, right? So that could definitely be a thing. Another thing is for people using special sports supplements, when you crank a shitload of androgens and train hard as fuck, I don't care if you're in a deficit or not, you will gain muscle. So a lot of post-show rebounds is like the muscle you gained and the glycogen water thing hit it the whole time. You get some water and carbs and you're like, oh my God. Like, no, you really did. Like as a natural prepping into a show, I think you may gain some latent muscle. As a non-natural, almost certainly you gain it. So you are actually bigger. Um, and I do think there is, uh, we have seen this a few times where these gains are prominent. So like a, a good example is Charlie. Um, 
Charlie from Team Full Rom, he, you know, his body weight will barely fall during much of his prep. At the end, it falls a lot from cutting carbs and uh, or cutting water and reloading. But like, it doesn't fall nearly as much as you would think. And you say, man, what's going to happen when he masses again? Which just goes to an all-time new high and he's lean as shit. And you're like, you must have gained muscle. There's no way around it. And in fact, he does. Every prep, he gains tons of muscle. So that's definitely a thing that can happen. It's more likely to happen anabolics, less likely to happen off. I still think it happens off of anabolics, especially for newer trainees. If you do a really hardcore diet, it used to be a third year of training, 12 weeks of hardcore training with a high-protein diet. There may be mechanisms by which you can gain lots of muscle without a caloric surplus. We know they're demonstrated in literature. Recomp does happen. You may recomp three or four pounds of muscle, and then when you feed the, the body back up, the muscle really expands. The last thing I'll say is there may be mechanisms by which you prepare the body for hypertrophy super well in some kind of long-term mechanism type of way. And then when you are exposed to food, you really get cranking like crazy and your body really starts to manufacture more new muscle still. So it's not just that you gain muscle during the fat loss phase and it was revealed in the massing phase. There could be that plus some kind of essentially a regulator system that goes, Jesus Christ, soon as I got my ass on some food, I'm gaining like crazy. And then when you are exposed to more food in the massing phase, then you go and you gain a bunch of muscle. Now it's going to be grams over weeks, but eight weeks of rebound after a show, you may have gained yourself another couple of pounds of muscle just through that mechanism. We know that at the extremes, insulin sensitivity definitely is that mechanism. But there could be others, and there could be some myostatin, folostatin things going on that we don't know about. But I would say is this, majority of the muscle you gained during prep and the rebound isn't gained muscle. It's just a visual effect, which is much more profound than we think. But there is 100% room for the idea that you can gain a small and or even decent amount of muscle latently during uh, your prep, That in just so some of the ways that I described. Just nothing I would say happens for sure. But I would say it's a is a sixty forty chance that it does happen to a significant extent, and uh, some chance for it causing quite a bit of muscle hypertrophy, uh, even in drug free individuals, and definitely individuals that use uh, uh, pharmaceutical compounds. It makes a, a ton of sense, and certainly something I have seen a bunch in terms, like the things you mentioned there, which you definitely see are the the glycogen refilling out, and then also potentially regaining some of that if you did lose any. Like I can definitely see why that would happen, and it sort of confirms why. I don't know if it's as much of a thing in on the enhanced side. I think it's still done, but I don't follow it as closely, so I, I don't know as much. But uh, kind of getting ready early and then having a number of weeks to almost like reverse. Up yeah. in like a long yeah. peak so you can increase your glycogen kind of storage ability maybe regain some lost stuff maybe there's some latent kind of hypertrophy going on there yeah. you get an all-time best look after like a month or something over doing this so uh, that confirms that kind of theoretical kind of mechanism that people are going for yeah. too yeah 100 and uh, uh funny enough scott the video guy recently did a cut and then he's remassing and he's like bro i was never this jacked <laughs> I was not this jacked before I started this diet. Latent hypertrophy must be a thing. And we sort of had a talk and I was like, it's probably a thing. Because he was like, there's just no way that I am supposed to look like this. And also he's hitting like big PRs early. And it's like, yeah, if you're all time strongest too, 
yeah. Jeez, that's just not cosmetic effect anymore. Uh, that's real, real effect. It's real. It takes real muscle to move weight. So if three weeks after you finished your last fat loss diet, you're like hitting mega PR after mega PR after mega PR, like, yeah, I can believe that you gained that muscle over the course of the prep. And this last question just kind of um, relates to some of the regulatory mechanisms going on in terms of being in a surplus and maybe like that latent hypertrophy being shown because now you've got the nutrition available. I remember, I think it may have even come up on the podcast before, but it came up with a client recently where we're talking about soreness and how when they're in a deficit, they don't get as sore and their kind of rationale was because they're not recovering as well. So, oh no, wait, on a deficit, they they had the rationale that they'd be getting more sore because they weren't recovering as well. Whereas in a mass, they get less, they would think you get less sore because you're recovering better. But in practice, it doesn't seem to go that way. Plopped. It's backwards. Yeah. For most people. There is one not so great reason that I think people get more sore when they're eating in a surplus. And I think that reason is that when you're eating in a surplus, specifically more junk foods, your overall in, in body's inflammatory state is higher. We know that carbohydrates cause quite a bit of low-level inflammation. It's not bad for you. It's totally fine. It's within the hermetic level of it probably makes you stronger overall and less uh, prone to disease. But that low-level inflammation can make it that the inflammation triggered by training is just much more intense. And it might not have anything to do with hypertrophy at all. Definitely a thing. Like uh, Jared, when he eats lots of carbs, has such intense inflammation that even has trouble with sports supplements because any introduction of those blows him up. His whole thing swells up. It's like, God damn it. But also gets great pumps and, and amazing soreness, like world's ending soreness. I don't think that explains everything. I think soreness is linked to hypertrophy pretty closely. And I think that for any given exposure, if the anabolic machinery is going harder, you will get more sore, not less sore. Um, I've done this quote unquote experiment myself a number of times. If you have a great workout, you don't eat protein for a while, you have some fluids, you eat very little, you go to sleep, you get shitty sleep, wake up, you do a bunch of work, you go to sleep again, you may never get a profound soreness in that muscle. Whereas if you do the same workout and then you have lots of carbs, lots of food, lots of great sleep, you wake up sore as fuck. So, and we know soreness is not caused by muscle damage directly. It's caused by secondary damage that the immune system causes when it infiltrates. The immune system also has the biggest role to play in growing your ass after it, immune, it infiltrates. If it never infiltrates much, it never grows you much. So uh, I remember early studies on soreness, especially in various supplements, people say, you know, this study shows BCAAs reduced soreness. And I'm like, is that a good thing? I don't know. You know, lately we've seen BCAAs don't do shit, which corroborates that. But it's kind of like they may have acute recovery benefits. And then they also may have soreness reducing benefits. And those are actually costs. So they end up canceling each other out. <laughs> Maybe that's the case. Maybe there's nothing going on with BCAAs at all. But I would say, like, the whole idea of soreness is a bad thing that you want to mitigate as much as possible. And the less you cause it, the better. That's absolutely not the right way to think about it. The ideal way, in my view, is to do this. Do every strategy that can possibly result, minus a few caveats like waiting to train for weeks to become more sore, but do it more or less every strategy to get kind of quote-unquote very sore, and then use every potential strategy you can 
to take that peak soreness to recovery and squish it in a small time frame as you can. Uh, people also say like, oh man, when I started using anabolics, I stopped getting sore. My response to that is you're a fucking moron because you should have trained one and a half times harder when you got an anabolics, got just as sore as ever, but then recovered three days earlier than you would drug free. So you could squish two workouts in a week instead of one and then get use the anabolics as well as possible to get this great, amazing growth. So at the end of the day, I think avoiding soreness is a bad idea. What you need to be doing is trying to get as high quality sessions of nutrition as possible, expecting that to probably make you more sore or have your peak soreness be higher, and then using every nutrition and training strategy to try to contract how long that soreness stays around. And that is really easy. That's sleep as much as possible, eat as much as possible, and take all the supplements to the extent that you're able. That, that's there's no other secrets you know like if someone's like hey i'm super sore in my quads aliens are coming in three days and if i have sore quads they're going to destroy the earth what do i do my answer is going to be like take a preposterous borderline unsafe amount of growth hormone insulin and and androgens sleep with the help of medications 18 hours every day and wake up every six hours to be tube fed protein and carb mixture <laughs> like that's how you heal it's not sauna it's not ice that stuff can prevent you from getting really sore but once you're sore already it just hides symptoms and you're not actually healing anything so it's someone's like okay so the real way to heal from soreness is to just eat a lot and relax a lot weird what else does that do oh yeah it grows muscle weird that's so strange how that works where some people look at soreness and like, oh, it's this side effect thing that I don't want. And if I just didn't get sore anymore, I could train more often. Uh, that's not how it works. That yeah. just seems to not cause a lot of hypertrophy. Uh, the reason the idea that training along muscle lengths causes more hypertrophy is also curious on the soreness yeah. front. It's also going to make you sore. Like, oh, strange. It's, it's a, almost everything that grows you makes you more sore and almost everything that doesn't grow you imagine you put together a plan to get no soreness very low volume very far from failure no eccentric emphasis no stretch under load and make sure to do all machines that are really poorly leveraged to actually stretch the muscle under load and also do be in a fat loss diet get very little sleep and take tons of NSAIDs around the workout and go to the sauna who's growing from that <laughs> right and all of a sudden, if you're like, oh, how do I get the most sore outside of training frequency manipulations, which is cheating, um, you would say, okay, the, the way to get more sore is stretch under load, really high volumes, close to failure, tons of food, tons of sleep. Uh, okay. Well, that sounds like a formula for success. I'm not saying try to get as sore as you can. I'm saying for however much you do get sore, maximize the training and nutrition around that and don't worry about reducing soreness. Let soreness do what it will. Don't train when you're sore. Rest until you're not and then feed the body in such a way that if that results in more soreness, hey, great, that means soreness in that case is hypertrophic. Yeah, I think I made a, an analogy of sorts recently. I think it was something along the lines of like getting sore isn't kind of guaranteeing that you've grown muscle, just like working hard doesn't mean you're guaranteeing you're making more money. But yep. to make more money, probably don't want to avoid working hard, probably want yes. to be working hard, just like if you're trying to grow as much muscle as possible, you don't want to avoid getting sore because there's a lot of things, like you said, especially we spoke about already, the lengthened range seems to be very hypertrophic, also gets you very sore, like an RDL or something like this. Sure. Uh, so very well explained, Mike. Thank you for taking the time. I don't want to take any more. I know uh, I've already taken too much of your time and we can get to the rest of these questions 
in uh, another episode hopefully we can book you back in and we'll do another one so guys thank you so much for listening thank you again mike for coming on is there anything coming up for team range of motion or for rp that you want to let the listeners know about if you're in the united states right around mid-december we have a big summit lecture and uh hangout situation in vegas during the olympia so if you're coming to the Olympia for Vegas, check that out because we're going to be there. It's very reasonably priced. Tons of fun. Tons of learning. Free goodie bags. We got a bunch of corporate sponsors to give us all kinds of free protein powders and stuff. So you feel me? I'm trying to steal at least three or four of them bags from my own conference, baby. That's how that's how lowbrow I am. And uh, so that's uh, something cool to keep up with. Um, another thing is um, we're probably going to have big discounts for Black Friday, which is coming up inevitably pretty soon. And so if you want to shop RP, uh, got great stuff, custom trade templates, et cetera. And then um, the diet certification. So just to tell everyone now, we will have a training certification eventually through RP. It'll be super extensive. We're beginning work on it now. It'll be around in the next year or two. It takes a while to make one. The diet cert. Uh, had its first cohort start in August or September. It's got its next cohort starting in March. But I'll clue you guys in on, on one real thing. We started the pre-sale. The total pre-sale was a few weeks long. And then the sale for the, the first cohort of the diet cert was another uh, like month or two. After two weeks of pre-sale, we ran out of spots. And because it's an administered course within a Facebook interaction thing, we can't just sell infinity because then everyone will get a shit quality. Like it'll be a great cert, but then you'll ask a question on Facebook and it's 3,000 of you, so no one is going to get an answer. So if you want to be RP diet certified, it's ask about, ask anyone who's taken the course now, their feedback. So far, at least to us, they've said it's amazing and it's super detailed. It's like a 55 hour course. This is not a weekend certification. This is intense as shit. If you want one of these things, it costs just under $1,000, anywhere from, depending on when you sign up, anywhere between $600 and $1,000. And uh, if you want to be someone who gets their cert in early 2023, soon as you see some shit for it, click and start buying because it's going to go fast. We had no idea. We had this whole, because you know, Steve, when you make digital products, you're like, okay, like we're going to label the website. This is where it starts. But like, we never got to use the sign up because after the yeah. first two weeks of pre-sale, we're like, we're out of spots. Uh, and then people are like, hey, when does the sale start? It hurts next week. And we're like, this is really bad. Um, sorry, <laughs> but there's going to be no sale. <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> like, So now, now we do have an email list. So if you hit up the RP, even just um, email RP info or go onto our chat box. And if you go into the cert, it's going to be, we sign you up for an email that when the cert goes into pre-sale, you'll be the first person to get an email. You can go sign up. It sounds, what I just said, makes me feel weird. It sounds super salesy. You guys have all known me long enough, or those of you who, to who I'm new, I promise I'm not lying. But we don't do scummy sales shit at RP. Sure as hell don't do it at Revive. Um, I'm just giving you the real talk of like, this shit is going to sell out fast because it already has. So it's not some promo tactic. It really will happen. I don't want people to be like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll get the cert in mid-January. And they look at mid-January and they're like, okay, and the next cohort opens up in 2027 or some shit? Like, what is this? <laughs> so sign up early and, and get that email. You get to go. I know you're going for that. What is it now? The fifth Lambo? Is that another Lambo you're going for? <laughs> I, I had 19. We had an incident where one of the butlers crashed a Lambo. Very Only I'm allowed to crash them. I crash them everywhere I go. I crash them into the Chipotle, go in and get a burrito. A new Lambo is placed for me by helicopter. So I, drive, I never drive the same Lambo twice. 
I can't, at my level of income, I can't be seen doing that, Steve. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a perception thing. Uh, it's like Kanye West wearing a dirty T-shirt. I mean, unless it's branded, it's not going to work. So uh, that's how I do my thing. So I'm actually, I'll put it this way. I'm so wealthy and so high class. It's, to me, if someone asks how many Lambos I have, it's almost like asking a person, how many pennies do you have in your, your little piggy bank? It's insulting to me, Steve. And actually would like an apology right now from you about asking me how many Lambos I have. Oh, go ahead. I'm, I've got another few seconds. I've never seen you not drive your Lambo, so I can confirm everything you said. Everything you said is true. You are really a scumbag. <laughs> uh, so, but no, I'm going to confirm everything that Mike said in terms of RP don't sell you kind of shit we know this so uh, <laughs> try, not to. <laughs> try not to uh and it doesn't surprise me that it sold out really really quickly although it for you guys sounded like it was surprising it doesn't surprise me and i imagine we the training always, certification is gonna do exactly the same i hope so we're gonna put a lot of work into it the diet cert is unbelievably complex and the training cert is gonna be like it's a it's like i would say this it's half a university degree like you kind of have the knowledge of a university degree in nutrition if you take the cert. No joke. Um, it's not just you take a thing. There's modules in which you practice and you have uh, situations in which you're asked to write diets and apply them, curveballs, all this other stuff. And it's tailored to diet coaches. Like if you just like want to learn stuff about nutrition and you have an extra thousand dollars around, sure, take the cert. But I'm not going to say that's a good idea. If you coach people in dieting and you want to do you want to learn how to do motivational interviewing, the psychological side. You want the technical side of how many macros and meals. There's also a component of the CERT, which uh, gives you tips on how to market yourself better. And that that part is written mostly by Nick Shaw, who runs RP, which is a multi-million dollar company. It's been around for 10 years. He knows a little bit about marketing, tiny bit about making sure you're seen well. And then so it's just a great product for people that are like, in-person or online coaches, they do nutrition and they just want to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row. And it's a great thing for that. It's no more than that. It's no less than that. It's not going to change your life for the magical better. You don't have to go out and buy it. We're not even going to say it's the best diet cert, but it is in a group of several diet certs, which are the best. You know, I'm not going to say like, oh, precision nutrition there. That's awful. Come to our cert. I'm sure their shit is great too, but it's a great product. And if it seems worthwhile, I would sign up for it. That's all I got to say. Uh, I like the sound of that because I think, I don't know, people might be thinking, oh, I've got diet 2.0 or whatever it might be. But that's it's one thing reading the book and then trying to apply it in situations. Like you said there, you're going to go through these things. And then obviously, if you are trying to be an online coach, like marketing is a big part of trying to grow a client base and you do not get taught that in virtually any personal training qualification, at least the ones I've seen. So I think that'd be really, really helpful for people. So thank you so much, Mike. Um, definitely guys check all those things out I have some clients actually at the RP Summit so they're very excited Woo! to be there um, tell excited them to for wear them to the shit uh, if, yeah they better have already bought some <laughs> or have to sh- I'll ship them some stuff out I'll just like go, go and rip the go. brand free marketing for me so yeah thank you so much again Mike and thank you guys for listening we'll catch you soon So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course.
The Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.